All right, please turn to Romans 7. All right, last week we looked at Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. This week we're going to look at verses 7 through 13. So I will read, I'll read, I'll start in verse 1, but I'll read through the end of 13 there. So in Romans 7, verse 1, Paul writes, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive from the, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. We'll stop there. So again, like I said last week, we began our look at Romans 7. Romans 7 is a very interesting chapter because it has a lot of interpretive challenges, uh, particularly As you may have noticed in the section I just read, Paul uses the first person pronoun, I, I, me, my, a lot. And there's a lot of debate as to whether he's referring to himself or he's using the I in a different way. We're not going to get into that today, maybe next week. But as we looked at Romans 7 verses 1 through 6 last week, we said that that section is sort of like a hinge or an overlap that connects what he has said in chapter 6 with what he's going to say through the rest of chapter 7. And in that section, he discusses the concept of what we're calling here freedom from the law. Freedom from the law. And the major theme from last week was that because the Christian is united with Christ, because of his union with Christ, he is freed from the bondage of the law, where Paul says, you you have died to that by which we were bound. So you were bound under the law, But because Christ died to the law and you are united with Christ, you too have died to the law. Now, the structure of that passage followed a very fairly basic layout. 
Paul states the principle in verse 1 where he says a person is under jurisdiction of the law only while he is alive. So the law only has control over you while you are still alive. That seems to stand to reason. Then Paul illustrates that principle in verses 2 and 3 by using the analogy of marriage to show that a woman is bound to her husband as long as the husband is alive. Once the husband is dead, she is free to join herself to another, to another man, to another husband. If her husband is still alive and she joins herself to another man, then she becomes an adulteress. She becomes a lawbreaker. So then Paul then applies this principle. So he states the principle, illustrates the principle, applies it in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 is really the key to this passage where he tells us that we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So we were made to die. We didn't die. We didn't cause our own death. We were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. It was Jesus Christ, as we said, who was born under the law. He lived under the law. He died under the law. And that life and death then fulfilled the law in all of its parts. And then by our union with Christ, then we too have died to the law. We too become law fulfillers in Christ because Christ's righteousness gets applied to us by faith. So we die to the law so we could be joined to another, namely to Christ. And he goes on to say, furthermore, while we were in the flesh... That is, while we were still under the influence of this age, while we were still under the influence of things in this world, we were aroused by the law. The sin nature, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. And we kind of looked at it, and we're going to look at it a little more even here in this passage, where the sin nature uses the law and kind of arouses sin within you. You know, we, I use a silly example of cookies, right? <laughs> You know, if you're, you're, if you're playing as a kid and you're not even thinking of cookies, you're just kind of oblivious to cookies. And then your mom says, I baked some cookies. They're upstairs. They're cooling. I'm going to go run an errand for an hour. Don't touch the cookies. And then before that, you're thinking, I wasn't thinking about cookies until you mentioned cookies. Now, I think I might want to try to sneak a cookie. That's, that's how the, the law, a commandment, arouses the sin nature within us. But then Paul says, because now we have died to the law or been released from the bondage of the law, we are now free to serve in the newness of the spirit. And that's kind of, we talked about how that's kind of related to what he says in chapter six, verse four. We were raised to walk in newness of life. It's a newness of life that is new because we walk in the spirit. And he'll go into that in Romans eight. But the whole thrust of this section as it connects with Romans six is that our Freedom from, the, from sin, our freedom from the law, is not a freedom to sin. And we've mentioned that several times. Freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. We are free to serve. We, have be, we, have, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves in bondage under the law. But then Christ came and released us from that bondage. And now we are free to serve him. So now as we get to our passage this morning here in verses 7 through 13, Paul is going to continue his exposition on the relationship between the believer and the law. And he does so by asking two questions. Again, using the technique that he's used all throughout this letter where he asks a question that is usually based on something he has just said. He asks a question, then he goes to answer it. And he's going to do that twice in this section. He's going to ask a question He's going to answer, and then he's going to have a follow-up question at the end of the the section. 
And Paul says, because we've been made to die to the law, and that the law aroused our sinful pleasures, and that we've been released from bondage to the law, then he's going to ask the question, is the law sin? Is the law sin? Because you, you hear these phrases, die to the law, the law arouses our sinful passions, we've been released from bondage to the law, you might think. Well, the law seems bad. So is the law sin? Does the law cause us to sin? So he's going to ask that question in verse 7. He's going to answer the question in verses 8 through 12. And then he's going to ask a follow-up question in verse 13. All right, starting in verse 7 here, Paul begins, like I said, by anticipating yet another question. So like we said, just in verse 6, we've died to the law. So he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And then he goes on to answer, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would, have not, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he asks this question rhetorically, is the law sin? And as always, these questions Paul asks are motivated, as we said earlier, by something he's just said. Again, namely in verse 4, where he says that through the body of Christ, we have died to the law. So that, we, so that we could be joined to Christ. He says that the law rouses our sinful passions. He speaks about us being released from bondage to the law. So having heard all that, it doesn't surprise me that someone would have a negative view of the law after hearing all of that. So the question, is the law sin? Can we essentially equate the law with sin? Does law equal sin? I don't know, what do you guys think? Let's take interpretation by vote. Is the law sin? No, okay. Of course not. Paul says right here in the next verse, he says, may it never be, or, or God forbid, or you know, whatever your translation says. It's an emphatic negative. He's used this before, and he's used it again and again. He asks a question, and then he follows it up with a very emphatic negative. By no means, may it never be. In fact, he says the opposite is true. Far from the law being sin, the law is what makes sin known to us. And we said this last week, if you remember, we looked at the three uses of the law. And one of those uses, I mean, I'll do a quiz here. Who remembers the three uses of the law? We talked about this last week, if you were here last week. <laughs> so it's, there the, the three images were mirror, curb, and guide. Okay, mirror, curb, and guide. So in this sense, the law makes known sin. It's a mirror. It reveals sin. It makes known God's righteous and holy will. And it reveals what sin is. And Paul had previously mentioned this feature of the law in Romans, in Romans 3.20, where he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So this is at the end of that section in Romans where he is going through the indictment of the entire human race. He talks about how Gentiles are sinful. He talks about how the Jews are sinful. Then he goes on to talk about how we're all sinful. And at the end, he says, for by works of the law, no man, no flesh will be justified. You cannot be justified. You cannot be righteous before God by or through works of the law. And he says, because, only the, because since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. The only thing the law can do now is show you what sin is. It cannot justify you. It cannot make you right. It cannot stop sin. All it can tell you is that this is sin. 
And that's it. Now, Paul gives an example of how this feature of the law works. He says, for I would not have known what coveting was unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Of course, this commandment against coveting is the 10th commandment. And it's an interesting commandment for Paul to focus on. And the reason why I think it's interesting, because of the 10, coveting is really the only sin that is internal. Right? I mean, I can't, I could see you if you commit murder. I could, you know, I could see if you were to commit thievery. If you were to lie, I would hear it. If you were to not disrespect, to not respect your parents, I would see it. But I can't see you coveting. That's something that's internal. It's something that's in the heart. All the other commandments are external in nature. Now, of course, we know that Jesus expands the understanding of the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says it's not just enough to not murder. You have to not have anger in your heart. So all of these external uh, sins have an internal component where it begins in the heart. But the actual sin, murder, thievery, lying, uh, stealing, all of that are external, but coveting is internal. In fact, most of these commands we would have known even without an explicit commandment, right? Because the law is written on our hearts. Paul says that in Romans 2. The law is written on our hearts. We didn't need necessarily to have the Ten Commandments come down to know some of these things because we would have known them instinctively by being created in the image of God. In fact, this is obvious, this is evident because we see most cultures, not just the Jews, but most cultures would have prohibitions against murder, thievery, and other things like that. So that is an outworking of the law written on their hearts to the point that even unbelieving pagan cultures can understand murder is wrong, respecting your parents is respecting authority, respecting your elders is good, stealing is wrong, things like that. But again, coveting is a different story. How do you measure coveting? But Paul goes on to say, so the law is not sin. The law reveals sin. It shows you what sin is. So now in verses 8 through 12, he's going to expand on this answer where he's going to show you that the law is not sin. And he's going to show you by showing you sin's abuse of the law, how sin abuses and misuses and misappropriates the law. Starting in verse 8, he, gets, he lays out the heart of the matter. In verse 8, where he says, The law is not sin, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So he's going to say here, the problem is not the law. It is sin. It is sin. And sin. what sin is doing is it's, it's seizing an opportunity through the commandment to produce all kinds of sin in you. Now, he's not talking about sin as in actual sins. He's talking about sin as a principle, as a way of life, the sin principle in us, the fallen nature in us. And here, sin is described as an intruder, is an invader waiting for that perfect moment to strike, you know, sort of like a snake in the grass, just waiting when you get close enough. Sin then seizes that opportunity to, to strike. And it's through the opportunity or through the means provided to it by the commandment, thou shalt not covet, that sin produced in Paul all kinds of covetousness. Again, think about the example with the cookies. <laughs> you know, you shall not covet. All of a sudden now it's like, oh, I'm going to start coveting everything I see now. 
my neighbor's house, my neighbor's wife, my neighbor's, you know, whatever, you know, so on and so forth. In fact, consider uh, the story of Cain and Abel. In fact, keep your finger in Romans 7 and flip over to Genesis 3. Genesis 4. So starting in verse 1. It says, Now the man, that is Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And Cain, she said, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to, her, to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So, obviously, this is a well-known story of the first recorded murder in in, uh, Scripture. And among other things, it also teaches us how fast sin corrupted the human race. We're not told exactly how long it was from the time of Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, but shortly thereafter... They, they had two children, and all of a sudden, the two children, like siblings do nowadays, they fight. <laughs> and they have, they have it out, and they, one kills the other. And it teaches us how fast sin corrupted the human race. But in verse 7, or, or I think it's verse 6, in verse 6, we see this interesting turn of phrase where God is telling Cain you know, to beware. He says, don't let this bother you. Because if you do, he says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Again, this picture of sin as a predator waiting for its moment to strike. If Cain is not watching his heart, if he's not guarding his heart, what's happening? Sin is sitting there waiting. It's waiting for an opportunity to strike. And when Cain lets his guard down, it strikes and then Cain strikes out at his brother. And that's the image that Paul wants to get into the mind of his readers. You could turn back to Romans 7. Sin, or the sin principle in us, is waiting. It's waiting and it seizes an opportunity through the commandment to produce more sin, this time actual sins in us. Paul then continues where he says, apart from the law, sin is dead. Again, another interesting turn of phrase. Now, we shouldn't think by this that the way to defeat sin is to abolish all laws. Okay, well, okay, if, if, sin, if sin is dead apart from the law, we should get rid of all laws, right? So you can have salvation by anarchy, right? No, that's not how it works. It's more like the sin principle lies dormant or it lies inactive apart from the law. We're still fallen human beings with corrupt natures, But the sin principle lies dormant until it is provoked, or as Paul uses earlier, aroused by the law. Again, I go back to my silly example of the cookies. (laughs) 
You're not, you know, the, the, the sin nature in the little child who wants to eat a cookie is not aroused until his mom says, don't eat the cookies. Okay, or I use the example of stepping on the grass. You put a sign, keep off the grass. I wasn't thinking about stepping on the grass until you put that sign, keep off the grass on your lawn. And now I'm thinking, well, who are you to tell me to keep off your grass? I'm going to walk all over your grass. In fact, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, where he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So so death's poison, a sting, whatever, is is sin, okay? Because we learned early in Romans 5, it was death that came into the world through sin, right? Adam's sin, death came into the world right after that. And sin's power is through the law. That law that stands against us and tells us what not to do, our sinful nature then wants to rebel against that. So sin's power comes through the law. So now as we get to verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us sort of an interesting little before and after example here where he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now, again, this is one of those hard to interpret passages by what Paul means when he says, I was once alive apart from the law. I mean, Paul was a Jew, right? Paul was not just a Jew. He was a Pharisee, which is like the Jewiest of the Jews. Okay? He, he was the most Jew, Jewish Jew around, being a cult, one of the cult of the Pharisees, one of the sect of the Pharisees. And he would have lived under the law, with the law, by the law his entire life. So how can you say, I was once alive apart from the law? And I think the key to understanding this is how the Jews saw the law. We looked a little bit at this earlier in Romans when we looked at Romans 2, Romans 3, Romans 4. But the Jews, if you recall back when we looked at Romans 3 verses 21 through 28, where Paul makes that pivot after showing the condemnation of all human uh, beings, He makes a pivot to show now how the righteousness of God is revealed apart from works of the law. And we looked at that phrase, works of the law. The Jews believed you could attain righteousness before God, that you can be justified before God, that you can have a holy and righteous standing before God by observing the law, by works of the law. In fact, they believed by keeping the law, they could see the kingdom of God. But at the end of that section in verse 28, Paul destroys that way of thinking. For he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works of the law do not enter into this equation of being justified before God by being righteous before God. Now, Paul had once lived under this false paradigm when he was a Pharisee. He once thought he could earn or merit righteousness Uh, the righteousness that God requires through his own efforts, through his own works of the law. You're like, well, how do you know this? Well, I know this because he said so. Keep your finger again in Romans 3 or 7 and flip over to Philippians 3. 
And in Philippians 3, starting in verse 4, Paul gives his own resume, a kind of a, a little snapshot of his curriculum vitae, if you will, where he says in verse 4, although I myself, uh, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So he's, he's talking to the Philippians who were sort of being enticed by a group of Judaizers. Judaizers who boasted in their flesh, who boasted in keeping the law, who boasted in their circumcision. And Paul's trying to get them to see the error of their ways. He's like, look, they're boasting in the flesh. Now, if anyone's going to be able to boast in the flesh, I can boast in the flesh. If you want to have a little resume war, I'm going to tell you my resume. So he tells him his resume. Starting in verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Pause there before we go on to verse 7. So he's telling you, I've got the pedigree, I've got the performance, I've got everything you need to be one who can boast in the law successfully. I've done it all. I was blameless. If you're talking about a righteousness that can come from the law, I was blameless. I did everything the law required me to do, and I did it perfectly. Then in verse 7, he says, but. My favorite word, thank you. But. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. So in verses 4 through 6, he's putting everything what he thought of in the plus column. All these things he thought were gain. All these things he took pride in. He was putting them in the plus column. And then he has this encounter with Jesus Christ. And then he realizes all these things that I had in the plus column, I need to move them over here to the garbage column. This is the garbage column. These were worthless. More more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So there, you can go back to Romans 7. So there he sees, once he realizes the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, he sees all these things that he put all of his confidence in, all of his boasting in, all of his, I can do this by the, my own works, by my own efforts. He sees it as nothing to emphasize that you cannot gain righteousness by works of the law. He, doesn't, he wants to be found in Christ, not having that kind of righteousness that comes through the law, because that is a false righteousness. It is a self-righteousness. It is a filthy rags righteousness that Isaiah will say. Paul at one time looked at his life before Christ and he thought like very similarly to the, uh, the character of the Pharisee in the parable in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you recall that parable, Jesus tells the parable, he says a Pharisee and a tax collector went to the synagogue to pray and the Pharisee says to himself, well, I thank God that I'm not like 
you know, all these other wretched sinners. I'm like, like this schmuck here on the ground who is begging. He says, I tithe. I do all these wonderful things. And God, aren't you glad to have someone like me on your team? And you should be wonderful, you know, thanking me, really. And, and the publican is sitting there on the floor just beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Paul was the Pharisee. Now he's the publican. <laughs> But Paul continues, he says, when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. In other words, when Paul gained a more thorough understanding of the law, when the convicting power of the law bore upon his soul, when it came full force, he died. He died to that way of living. He says, sin sprang to life. It became alive. When I, understand, when I understood how the, the law really is, Sin sprang to life. It became alive in me. The sin principle revived in Paul. And he realized that the thing he once boasted and became a source of death for him. The very thing that he thought was the pathway of life, the law ended up being a gateway to death. Now, how could Paul be so wrong? Was he wrong? I mean, the law is a pathway to life. Right? God gave the law to Adam. He gave him a command. Do not eat of the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Implied, if you refrain from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will live. Had Adam obeyed, he would have inherited everlasting, eschatological, end times life. And even after giving the Mosaic law, God says that the one who keeps it who keeps the law shall live. That's Leviticus 18.5. The one who keeps the law shall live. In fact, that's what Jesus says to the Jewish lawyer in Luke 10. A lawyer comes up to him and says, what must I do to see the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the lawyer says, well, it says this, 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 and this. And Jesus says, okay, do those and you will live. So Paul isn't wrong. The law does result in life if one can keep the law perfectly. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the ones who thought they could earn their wage to righteousness by works of the law. So you need to have a righteousness that's above that. Well, what's above that? The righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who could perfectly fulfill the law. You have to then, by faith, appropriate that for yourself. So as we said earlier, the problem is not the law, but it is the sin principle that lives within us. That's what he says in verse 11. For sin, he uses this phrase again, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the reason why Paul once felt alive apart from the law but is now dead is because sin deceived him. Sin seized another opportunity through the law to deceive him, to trick him. This idea, again, of deceiving or seizing an opportunity, sort of like a running back where he sees a hole in the offensive line and he bolts and runs for daylight. In other words, the law is not the problem. The law is not sin. The law only shows us our sin, but the sin principle in Paul and in all of us sees a golden opportunity to produce more and more sin leading to death. 
And Paul says he was deceived by sin. The sin principle is deceptive. Sin promises much, but delivers little. And we see this again all as far back as the garden. When Satan tempted Eve, what did he tell her? He caused her to doubt God's word. Did God say, you will not die? God said, if you eat of the, of the fruit, you will die. And Satan says, no, you're not going to die. And then he says, you will be like God if you eat the fruit. So three ways he lied to her and she eventually ate. Sin deceived Paul by using the law and telling him that he could earn righteousness before holy God by works of the law. Here's what God wants you to do. If you do it, you will live. That's how sin is deceiving him through the law. Because the law is God's revealed will, the sin principle will get us to think that we can earn righteousness before God by doing his will. But we already know from earlier in Romans, no one is justified by works of the law. So sin deceived Paul through the commandment. It killed Paul. So sin is not just a liar, it's a murderer. Sin killed Paul. His life of false assurance by his own works where he thought he was blameless. He was crushed under the weight of the convicting power of sin. So today... The way to God through the law is a way that ends in death. It was a way, it's a way that ends in death because ever since the fall, no law keeping will be sufficient. The law as a way to life for a fallen human being was closed to us the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. That The law stopped being a way of life for us and our ability to keep it. It is only now a way of death. It's a way that ends in death. So Paul then concludes that the law, far from being the problem, is actually good in verse 12, where he says, so the law is not sin, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God is the supreme lawgiver, right? God gives the law, and he himself is holy, so therefore the law must be holy. If you remember a few weeks back, we spoke of legalism and antinomianism and how the antinomian, the person who is against the law, looks at the fact that works of the law cannot justify, therefore concludes, okay, let's just ditch the law. But then if you think about what we said last week about how the law or the three uses of the law, uh, even though we cannot be justified by works of the law, the law is still useful to us. We cannot earn righteousness through it, but it still has a use for us. It still has purpose for us. Again, the mirror, it shows us what sin is. The law is a curb. It can be used to show what sin is and to restrict or or limit sin. And of course, for the one that is most important for the Christian is as a guide. It shows us how to live a life of thankful obedience to God for all that he has done for us in Christ. So the weakness of the law is not inherent in self to the law, okay? The the problem with the law is not inherent in the law. The problem with the law is us, okay? The problem of the law is us, and we'll get into this in more detail next week. But the weakness of the law is in us. Just as a chef is only as good as the ingredients that he uses, so too the law is only as good as the ability of the people to follow it. And we cannot follow it because we are already fallen in sin, 
And again, if you want more proof that the law is holy, consider what, he, what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, 7 through 11, where the, the psalmist David says that the law of the Lord is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. It is true. The law of the Lord is more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey on the honeycomb. Does it sound like the Bible has a low opinion of the law of God? Well, Paul concludes this section in 13 with a follow-up question uh, where he says, then did that which is good then bring death to me? Again, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the essence of the question Paul is asking here is, did the holy law of God, that which is righteous and good, bring death? And Paul's going to say, no, the law does not bring death. What is holy cannot bring death. Such a thing is not possible. It was not the law that brought about the death. Rather, it was sin that brought about the death using the instrumentality or the means of the law. And that's where we see here the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Sin takes God's good gifts and mars them and deforms them and turns them into instruments of death. The law which was to lead man into the blessed life now becomes that through which death comes. You cannot earn righteousness through works of the law. But this in no way makes the law evil, just shows us how wicked sin really is. And we go back to what we said at the beginning. Ever since the fall, due to man's corrupt nature, the law can only show what sin is. The law is like a thermometer, not a thermostat. Okay, a thermometer can tell you what the temperature is. The thermometer cannot alter or change the temperature. For that, you need a thermostat. The law is a thermometer. The law cannot control our sin. Our fallen nature wants to sin, but the law shows us the boundaries of sin. The law just tells you, okay, this is, you know, anything in here is okay. If you go beyond these borders, you're in sin land, okay? Then the sin nature says, great, let's go there. (laughs) That's what the sin nature wants to do. It wants, you know, wherever the boundaries are, I want to go and transgress those boundaries. That's what the sin nature does in us. Um, Next week... Lord willing, the 27th, we're going to finish Romans 7 by looking at verses 14 through 25 in our freedom from the law.